0: So flip to 1 Corinthians 15 in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at verses 20 through 28. And again, this is called the first fruits of the present future. And that's our text, 1 Corinthians 15. I'll pray, read the text, and we'll get to work. Our Father in heaven, as the thrice holy God, you are sovereign over time, sovereign over history, You are immutable and unchanging in your plans for the world. Um, We rejoice that you have brought us near to your Son by the power of your Spirit. Help us today to understand your Word so that we may um, obey your Word. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Okay, so pay attention to the language of first fruits. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And listen to this, these couple of verses here. But each in his own order. Okay? Christ the first fruits. Note that. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. What is the coming? We're going to talk about that. Then. We're going to mention what that word is. Comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God, the father, when he abolished all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who has who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So we're going to basically focus our attention this morning on verses 23 and 24, so you can kind of section that off, bracket that off in your mind there. Um, And in a little while, I'm going to appeal to some other scriptures to make sure that we understand what the Bible is getting at when it pertains to the ministry of Jesus, especially Um, his resurrection. So we've called this Have Yourself an Eschatological Christmas, and it's not primarily about the birth of Christ, but it also um, is about other things. So for the most part, that's what we have been focusing on is his birth. Um, But I think it's rather self-evident that we can't take the birth of Christ and then sever it from the rest of what Christ came to do. the birth of Christ led to the life of Christ, which led to the death of Christ, which gave way to the resurrection of Christ, and then obviously the subsequent ascension of Christ, um, which will kind of be more next week, by the way, next, the next message, the last message of the series. So we can, in a matter of speaking, we can emphasize the different aspects of Jesus while keeping in mind that we aren't to be reductionists who separate those things out, pitting them against one another. Sort of bad historians do that. (laughs) They are separate pieces his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They're separate pieces, but they're the type of pieces that go together much like a puzzle, not random pieces that don't go to anything else. So Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was raised, he ascended. All of that serves as the foundation of the gospel of the kingdom. The first two weeks of this series, we emphasize the significance of the Incarnation, specifically His his birth, and then what it means for history. Um, The Incarnation, if you recall, was that great moment of discontinuity, whereby history was forever altered and forever changed. So our understanding of the past, the present, and the future was was altered when God, who sits enthroned above time, entered into time to bring all of human existence into subjection to His Lordship um last week we talked about the nature of the kingdom of god as it pertains to to Christ's political rule among all the nations and all peoples and all institutions so jesus was quite literally born to be a king so next time someone says you can't get political we can't help it we are always going to be political because jesus is a king jesus is not just a wise sage or you know a, a person who is a moral Um, proponent of certain things. He's king. So we're already in the realm of politics when we confess that he is Lord. So this week, our focus is going to shift to the significance of the resurrection and what that means for the world. And its meaning, of course, being something far more than what we typically assume. So let's let's consider our text. I just want to work through it with you. 1 Corinthians 15. It's a long passage. It explains It explains the gospel and how it works itself out in space and time. Um, if you recall, the early Christians, their the first part of their confession is the first few verses there in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Paul says that Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised according to the scriptures. That's verses three and five, three through five. So this unprecedented event, this another act of discontinuity, by the way, in the world. Jesus then after that appeared to several hundred people, um, including Paul. That's verses 6 through 8. So that's kind of the foundation of the gospel. Jesus did these things, he appeared. That's great, but it's not as though that's only the, the only aspect of the gospel or what the gospel does. That's the basis of the gospel, but then he moves on to explain the consequence of the gospel, the consequence of the good news in the world. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. That's the connection. Um, If Christ isn't raised, Paul says, everything's basically pointless. That's verses 12 through 19. I mean, what an incredible thing to say, right? If the dead aren't raised, Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised, we're basically going to end up nihilists. So go for it. Nothing matters. Nothing has meaning. That sort of thing. But, Paul says, Christ has been raised. He's the first fruits of those who have died. Verse 20. Adam brought death. Christ brought life. Verses 21 and 22. And here's the crux of the argument. Christ is the first fruits of what exactly? We'll get to that. After Christ's initial first fruit, there is another resurrection. And if you look at verse 23, he says, Those who are, are Christ at his coming. Well, what's that coming? Is it the second coming? Well, no, but we'll explain that. After this, there's one final moment in verse 24. He says, Then comes the end. And the end being Christ's handing over of His kingdom, His mediatorial kingdom, to the Father, the very kingdom that was given to Him at His birth, as we saw a couple uh, last week. That's Isaiah nine. So, so the rest of the section explains what history looks like, and it looks a whole lot like Jesus putting His enemies under His feet. That's verse twenty-five. If you want a go-to passage with postmillennialism and understanding history, like this is it. Mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 15 is rich. Uh, During Christ's mediatorial reign, he abolishes all rule and authority and power. That's verse 24. Uh, King Jesus is reigning, and the reigning coincides with the footstooling of all his enemies. Okay? So we can't get schizophrenic like our beloved brother in Christ, John MacArthur, who says that Jesus is in voluntary exile right now. Doing what exactly? Playing par three golf. I don't know. But... He's not footstooling the nations now. We, that's not what the text says. His reign coincides with his footstooling of the nations. Mm-hmm. Okay, They go together. Mm-hmm. The very last enemy to be conquered in history, indeed at the tail end of history, history's final moments, is death. Verse 28. Uh, 26, 27, and 28. Um, death is subjected to God at the final resurrection. The moment... God gives the word, resurrection happens, the final resurrection, and then all of this, of course, is for the purposes of God being all in all. Verse 28. <clears throat> so, that the risen Christ is the foundational principle for all human history goes without saying. I think we've established that. This is the linchpin of everything. The, the tomb is empty. Everything's changed from there. Okay? We live in a world where a tomb sits empty because a king who was killed has been raised. There's a lot there, but that goes without saying. That's the foundation. Paul is clearly intentionable, intention, intentional rather, about making that point <clears throat> in this passage. So the question nonetheless becomes this. What is the nature of Christ's resurrection? What is the nature of it? Okay? Because he, he eats fish with the disciples, but, and he, he clearly has a... There's a level of continuity with his humanity, but there's also a level of discontinuity. So they, they recognized Jesus. Remember, he came into the room. They recognized it was him. They could see the scars, but he had a glorified body. So what is the nature of his resurrection? How does this resurrection then lead to others being resurrected? And what does the coming mean? Um, these questions, no doubt, perplex many people, but I'm going to lay some things out for you today and hopefully give you some... More uh, clarity. <clears throat> so Jesus is the first fruits of the present future. He is the beginning of the future now made present. Okay, when Jesus died and was raised, the inaugural moment of the kingdom of heaven was revealed and made the now present reality for the entire cosmos. Does that make sense? Okay, the the death and resurrection. That was the inaugural moment when the kingdom of heaven had come to the earth, and it was now the new present reality for the cosmos. So the judicial death to atone for sin, followed by the vindication of the resurrection in the middle of history, became the bedrock for a new reality, a new condition in the world. The kingdom of God is coming to earth in a radically new way. Not like it had been with the temple, the tabernacle, the kingdom of Israel. Things are different. There's some level of continuity, but there's also a radical level of discontinuity. The kingdom of heaven, based on Christ's judicial death, his vindication and his resurrection, that is the bedrock. There is a new working order for, the, for history. So the resurrection of Christ, quite literally, that is the foundation of our faith. Furthermore, the resurrection of Christ sets the stage for the Spirit's regenerating power to be exercised in the world as history advances to glory. I'll say that again. The resurrection of Christ sets the stage for the Spirit's regenerating power to be exercised in the world, in history, as history moves and advances towards glory. <clears throat> so like, just to be clear, we're not on a sinking ship. <laughs> The humanist ship is sinking as clearly evidenced by second amendment issues and other things that we've already talked about. But this ship, this is the ship. The ship is the footstooling of the nations. Christ's our captain and there are times when, you know, we're gonna have to supercharge the cannons and go to war. And then there are times we're gonna have to, you know, meet in the hull of the ship and discuss plans and fellowship and eat and then go back to fighting. That, but it's our ship, it's not sinking. It's an indestructible ship. Christ is our captain. Mm -hmm. There is, therefore, much to be said about the resurrection, and I think we would do very well to pay close attention to the language that Paul uses here and elsewhere, seeing what he's actually saying, comparing it to other scriptures, and again, not assuming what he's saying. See, Paul sees the resurrection of Jesus. I'm only speaking of his resurrection. He sees his resurrection as being the first fruits of a harvest. Mm But what you need to know is what harvest is he talking about? Okay, because that's biblical language. It's all over the Old Testament. We're going to quote Ruth in a little while. There's What harvest is he talking? He's using first fruits language of what harvest. Now, when we enter into the world of the first century, we can conclude a few things, especially as we piece this together with various parts of the Bible. To start, there are two different festivals that are connected to two different harvests, okay? So think you're, you know, a a fourth century Jewish person in covenant with God in Israel, and you have these festivals to celebrate, and they're all connected to the harvest. It's two different harvests. You had, during the time of Passover, like the big event in Israel, you had um, Passover, which was in the middle of April, connected to the barley crop. The first harvest, if you will <clears throat> barley, barley was the first crop harvest. Um, you can look at exodus 9 thirty one and thirty two for that but there are two stages to this harvest, and I, I will confess that i 'm indebted to Phil Kaiser for pointing this out to me um, <clears throat> a few years ago because it 's not something i 've spent a lot of time studying until this week, but it 's something i 've kind of adhered to but just never really explored so you get to enjoy what I explored this week. (laughs) So there were two stages of the one harvest. Okay. Just keep this in mind. Passover festival celebration of barley, the barley crop. Okay. But the barley crop had two stages. Okay. First at right at the start of the harvest, there was the gleaning of the first fruits. That's Leviticus 23. A month later, there was the full harvest of the ripe barley crops. Okay. So initial gleaning a month later the full on harvest of the barley not to be confused with wheat which we'll get to the first fruits we'll just call that stage 1 step 1 as paul understood it was christ's resurrection during the passover celebration of ad 30 okay so you can see acts 26:23 again 1 corinthians 15:20 and our text 22 through 24 um, he hints at it in Colossians one eighteen and Hebrews twelve. Um, when he's hinting at these these ideas, he's talking about Jesus being the first fruits of the barley harvest. All right, a month later was the general harvest of the rest of the barley crop. Uh, you can Acts twenty four he refers to it. Revelation twenty we just read. We're going to come back to that. So the key to understanding stage two of the barley harvest is its connection to AD 70, okay? So hang with me. I'm gonna sum this up real quick. Christ was the first fruits of the barley crop in AD 30, but there was also a resurrection in AD 70 at his coming, which is what Paul means here in 1 Corinthians 15:23. <clears throat> so these resurrections are separated theologically. We can separate them theologically but they all constitute one great resurrection, but that's the barley resurrection. And that's the first resurrection that's described in revelation 20. Okay. So that's the first harvest you tracking barley harvest, two stages, 80, 30, 80, 70. And I'm going to show you what Paul means here in 1 Corinthians 15 in a second, there's a second harvest. The second harvest is the wheat grain harvest. And that happened 50 days later at Pentecost, where we get 50, the Pentecost celebration, which was in early June. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 16 and Ruth chapter 2. So this, this festival, Pentecost, also goes by the name, you've heard of it before, Feast of Weeks, and that's Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. This was an agricultural celebration as well. Israel had a lot of those. They had festivals that coincided with the harvests, They had festivals that were a celebration of agricultural success, God's blessing, and they gave the glory to God because of it. So they thanked God for his provision. They thanked God for his sustenance. You know, we sort of each week celebrate Passover, if you will. We take communion with our agape meal, and it's sort of this celebration of God's provision for us. We're thankful to him. So Thanksgiving isn't just one day of the year. It's every day. It's every day. Time the church gathers to thank him. So, in the book of Acts, we know Pentecost is connected to Christ's promise of the Holy Spirit, who, in an act of resurrection life, regenerated God's people. Remember the tongues of fire incident; they're in the room. God's Spirit is poured out on on God's people, and He gives them a foretaste or a down payment of that future final resurrection. So, you have to keep in mind the agricultural context, especially. Because the time between 8030 and 8070 was an overlapping of the ages. Okay, so for those of you who have read um, David Chilton, um, uh, Paradise Restored, he, he emphasizes this. It's v- one of the best books on this issue. Um, 80 8030 and 8070, there was an overlap of the ages. In 8030, because of Christ's death and resurrection, the new covenant, that's the new heavens and the new earth, the new order, Began its implementation in the world from 8030 all on to the end of history. That's what that that age is. It it broke in at the end times, which should be understood as the end of the old covenant epoch. Right, the barley harvest beginning with Christ's first fruits resurrection in 8030, and then it concluded <clears throat> with the 8070 resurrection. That time between 8030 and 8070 was the transition period. From the old heavens and the old earth, the old order of things going away, giving way to the new order of the new heavens and new earth. So if I I could draw it, I would. We have 80.30. I'm going to do it backwards so it makes sense to you. 80.30 on a timeline, 80.70 here. From creation to 80.70, you had the old order of things, the old heavens, the old earth. But before that ended in 80.70... You had also the beginning of the new, which lasts to the end. So there was an overlap of the old giving way to the new. Now, <clears throat> I really want to make sure that we're clear, clear on this, because, and, I, and I'm going to reiterate a couple of things. First, and you, you, don't, you can jot this down if you want, but I'm going to quote part of it here. Matthew 27:52 is a very strange verse in your Bible. It's a strange verse because it explains the powerful nature of Christ's resurrection. Okay, Matthew 27:52. It was so powerful that Matthew says graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised coming out of the graves after his resurrection and they too appeared to many people. <laughs> what a weird verse. And only Matthew talks about it. Jesus, his resurrection was so powerful that it like sent shockwaves through the dead realm and people were raised in that moment. People were raised right then and there. Amazing. The first fruits harvest in the middle of history was such that many, many people were raised with Jesus in that moment. Secondly, if you're at 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to look at verse 24 there's a pesky Greek word that's parked right at the start of the sentence, and it's translated, if you have an NASB, and probably, Aaron, do you have an ESB? Is it say then at the very beginning of verse 24? Then, <clears throat> um, as in then comes the end. The Greek word is eta, and it refers to something that happens a lot later in time. When we say then, yeah, You know, we, we, we went to the movies, then we got something to eat. And you don't think there's 2,000 years between, between there, between the movie and the food. Then, sort of just in our modern parlance, we think it's just something that happened right away after. The Greek language has words like that. This is not that word. The implication of the word is there's something that happens a long time after what was just said. The barley harvest, which happened in two stages, is described in verse 23. Then, as in, at a much later time, after that initial harvest, right? There is a final wheat harvest when Christ returns to consummate history. So, at the end of verse twenty-three, you see that at his, the phrase "at his coming," the coming is thus his appearing. What we talked about in week one—the the Greek word is parousia—it's his royal presence in the affairs of history as he brought judgment against Jerusalem in AD 70. That is not his coming at the end of time. It's the present distress. It's, it's a, this generation shall not pass away sort of language. It's the same thing he said in, in the Olivet Discourse. So the connection between Christ, the firstborn from the dead, and those who were raised at AD 70's coming, is as sure as the connection between the first part of the harvest of the barley crop and the rest of the barley crop as well. That's why Paul can say what he says there in 1 Corinthians 15. See, Christ is the first fruits, and then it is coming. And then, as in a long time after that, there is a final harvest. He's speaking of two different harvests, and it's emphasized several places in Scripture. Now, <clears throat> at this point in the discussion, you might be wondering how, how in the world I've never heard of this resurrection in AD 70. I've never heard of that. Good question. There are several passages in the Bible that have the Greek word, what we call "melo," m-e-l-o, m-e-l-l-o rather. And that word is best translated as about to judge. Well, it's about to. The word judge is different. Uh, krino is usually the word we use for judge. But it, it, it's something that this connotation that something's going to happen very, very soon. Okay, not 2000 years. Okay, if if one of you was running late this morning and you texted one of us and said, we'll be there soon. None of us think 2,000 years. No one thinks that. So when you enter in the world of the New Testament, why do we immediately assume that when they say, (laughs) mellow? It's about to happen. I'm going to mellow to the house here very soon. I'm going to show up very soon. Why do we assume that these people were crazy in the first century, and they really meant something that happened crazy off into the future. So, I'm going to give you two examples. First one, Acts 17.31. Acts 17.31 says, Because he has fixed a day in which he will, that's the word mellow, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Here, Christ's resurrection is connected to the imminent judgment of Israel. Don't divorce the two. Um, Paul knows this. Daniel chapter 12 teaches the same thing. There's this fiery judgment followed immediately by a resurrection. Okay, Um, Daniel 12.2, many are raised, but not everyone. People ignore that. They gloss it over. The the Old Testament didn't say a lot about resurrection, but it said enough. Mm -hmm. And the doctrine was there. Jesus knew it. He understood it. The the New Testament writers, they understood it. But not everyone was raised. And this is because the first century barley harvest is one set of resurrections. The wheat harvest at the end of history is the other resurrection. Mm -hmm. Okay? Second example. There are numerous... Imminent judgment passages that describe what Acts seventeen thirty one describes, and they too use the same Greek word mellow. It's the same word, and you can look them up, of course, later. Here's I'm just going to give you a couple. Acts twenty four fifteen, Paul describes to Felix, who was ruler at that time, the coming resurrection that would happen in AD 70. <clears throat> he uses the word mellow, not talking about two thousand years of history. He also describes it again in Acts 24, verse 25. Let me give you another. Romans 8, 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. To be revealed. Mellow. Um, Paul's saying that is there's glory which is about to be revealed imminently. Okay, not... You know, some obscure time in history, imminently. Another passage, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul encourages Timothy not to worry because Christ is about to judge the living and the dead, which is another reference to AD 70. See, AD 70 is a foretaste of the judgment at the end of history. And God judges in history the same way. Jesus is... We think of like this is I don't understand why I know why is cuz we're all functionally Greek philosophers and we need to repent for it. But we have this idea that Jesus is in heaven. Yeah, he's king, he's lord, but it's he's not really involved. And he is involved. By raising up leaders, by bringing judgment. I mean, things like the Civil War, these things that happen, God is intricately involved in the affairs of what's happening on earth. But 87 was a foretaste. 8070, if you haven't studied much of that, it, it was bad. It was bad. Another New Testament passage that'll prove the point. You guys know this in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Dispensationalists love this passage because they believe it's the rapture passage. And quite to the contrary, it teaches the opposite. If you recall, the Thessalonian Christians, they were concerned about all of these things. They were concerned about the resurrection stuff Paul was teaching. Paul was to die before AD 70, and he did. He knew that he would be raised in AD 70. And this passage proves it. Why? Well, there was a problem that they had. All right, People survived AD 70 and were still alive. Guess what they were worried about? Whoa, what about us? Did we miss it? Did we, did we miss the resurrection? Did we miss this? Verse 17, Then he, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the, the Lord. The word then here is the same word found in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Here Paul, he comforts them by saying that those who were alive after the AD 70 resurrection will be good to go for the wheat harvest. You're fine. You didn't miss it. You just missed the first round. Round two is coming. If you miss the barley harvest resurrection, just hang tight. You'll catch the next harvest. Now, <clears throat> I have a footnote here. I believe that 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 fit together perfectly. Mm-hmm. Perfectly. Like effortlessly. You don't have to you know, move words around and make things say what you want them to say. They just fit. Um, here's why. There is Christ's 8030 first fruits of the barley harvest resurrection. We know that. Then there's 8070's royal presence of Christ for judgment and resurrection, which is the last part of the barley harvest, right? That resurrection. And then both words are used in the same place, same passage, after a long time, not immediately, then after a long time, the final wheat harvest resurrection at the end of time. They're saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. If we would just pay attention. So let me illustrate the harvest distinctions. And one only needs to basically look at the book of Ruth to illustrate Christ. Christ is the kinsman redeemer. It's a fairly basic understanding of the book of Ruth. Um, everybody knows that. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. You know, the whole story of Ruth um, being about Jesus ultimately. In the book of Revelation, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'm convinced and believe that, that uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb was put intentionally at AD 70 because when Ruth comes to Bethlehem we're told in Ruth 122 that it's the beginning of the barley harvest and by the end of the barley harvest guess what happens Ruth is betrothed and married and that's in Ruth chapter 3. So that's a picture of that. <clears throat> So this is all done at the, at, at the barley harvest, not the wheat harvest. So th- this is the beginning of the kingdom of Christ on earth, not the end of it. This is why premillennialists just can't get this right. Th- this is the beginning of the kingdom of Christ, the barley harvest. That's the beginning of it, not the end of it. They conflate the two harvests. And thus you have to play fast and loose with what Paul says in these passages that we just looked at. We are married to Christ... We're brought into him, right? We're the bride. And we reign with him, which, as Emberly read, is what Revelation 20 talks about. So let me emphasize Revelation 20. Listen carefully. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Jesus came and he said, I bound the strong man. Same words, it's here. Um... He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones. Where is John looking? Heaven. He saw thrones and they sat on them. They, we'll get to that. Who, who is they? <clears throat> uh, and judgment was given to them. Given to who? And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word, the martyrs. And those who had not worshipped the beast, those who endured Rome's oppression leading up to AD 70, who died as martyrs, they had not received the mark on their forehead. In other words, they did not. They were not in covenant with the beast. They had repented of that. They stuck in covenant with Christ. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And he tells us right here what that is. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Mm -hmm. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Why are you blessed? Because you endured hell on earth. Mm -hmm. Blessed is the holy one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Listen, Revelation is primarily speaking about first century events, which is why the Bible speaks the way it does about these resurrections, plural. Those who endured the beast tribulation, staying faithful all the way to the end, they were raised in resurrection glory in AD 70. The rest, Revelation 20 says, however, didn't come to life. They had to wait until the wheat harvest after the millennial reign of Christ. Christ is in his millennial glory right now. The martyrs reign as Christ's reign. The rest of us in Christ, we reign here on earth, awaiting the wheat harvest, when history is consummated after Christ's enemies are defeated. Mm-hmm. Are we tracking? It's a lot, but <laughs> I'm going to give you a little history, too, because we, we talked Bible. Let's do a little bit of history. And uh, I was a glutton for punishment, so I went and read some Josephus <laughs> this week. <coughs> In his book, The Jew, War of the Jews, listen to what Josephus describes. He's describing eighty seventy. On the 21st day of the month, Artemisius, uh, a certain um, prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those two that saw it. And were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals? For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds, the surrounding of cities. Just like Revelation 19 describes. Um, I, Peter Lihar has a really interesting commentary on Revelation that came out, and, and we would have much in common with him Um, in his understanding of AD 70 and this parade of Jesus through history he's leading the parade of the martyrs and he is winning the victory (laughs) it's a celebration it's a victory parade the Roman historian Tacitus he documents the event he says this in the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict of glittering armor all this is happening. The, Ro- the Jewish-Roman War, 8066 to 8070, was utter chaos. Disasters everywhere. It was a tumultuous, to say, put it lightly, event. Ongoing. People starving. Millions dead. It was a slaughter. And here we have a Roman historian and a Jewish uh, who was viewed as a betrayed guy, historian Josephus. He betrayed his Jewish buddies and you know, wrote this for the Romans. They see these things happening. So as we wrap this up, I, just, I want to shift gears for a moment and sort of bring this together. And it's going to seem like I'm completely changing the subject, but you'll see why it makes sense. Much of the debate surrounding AD 70 and so forth can be easily solved when we see the link between what Jesus said about his own body and what he said about the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, don't miss this connection. It is clear from his remarks about the corruption of the temple and his overall contention with the temple. Um, places like Matthew twenty-three or Matthew twelve-six, he says, "But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here." Okay, wow, yeah, that's walking by the White House. Something greater than the White House is here. <laughs> oh, that's that's a bold statement. He also said in John two nineteen, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." talking about his body, but they're like, what, he just blaspheme the temple. That, this, uh, it's clear with all of his contention that this was one of the main issues surrounding his ministry. Um, the birth of Christ, which gave way to the life of Christ, would lead to a massive confrontation with the Jewish leaders and their beloved temple. Quite literally, Jesus is the true temple of God, the place where heaven and earth meet perfectly. He had brought the future glory of the temple of the people of God to the earth, and there was no room in Jerusalem for both of them. The temple in the old covenant age was made as a copy, if you recall, a copy of the heavenly temple where God dwells. You can just look at Hebrews 8 and 9. Moses literally gets a copy of the heavenly temple. That's the instructions, the blueprints for the earthly tabernacle and temple. As we know, God does not dwell in temples made by human hands, at least not in the fullest way possible. Solomon says as much with the dedication of the temple. Therefore, Jesus came as the tabernacle temple, which is what John 1.14 says, to bring the future to the present, now past, in order to unleash the new covenant blessings of a new heaven and new earth. I'm going to say this a couple of times because I want it, this is my point of emphasis. Jesus, the temple, upended the real temple in order to establish the people of God as a temple where Christ's spirit dwells. Jesus, the true temple, think fully divine, fully human, heaven and earth meeting in him. He's the true temple who upended the real temple in order to establish the people of God as a temple where Christ's spirit dwells. This people of God temple expands and contracts all the time growing slowly through time in ever increasing ways as the gospel smashes idols and takes men captive to the grace of God see the place where heaven and earth touch could never be made never be a temple that's made of brick and mortar mm-hmm. it could never do it no, it needed to be a temple made of glory and made of righteousness. In order for a new temple to be constructed, it needed living stones. The type of stones that we haven't even invented yet. The type of stones that grow and expand as this temple gets bigger and bigger on the earth. <clears throat> and the question is, how does God get new? How does God get living stones? Remember Ezekiel, what is your heart before Christ? It's a heart of stone. But how does it become something different? Well, he regenerates them, right? how How does he regenerate them? He brings the future into the present in a collision of astronomical proportions, what we call the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. The resurrection of Christ was the first fruits of the present future. The paradigm looks like this. Future glory stepped into the present to shape and reshape the future. Future glory came in the birth, death, resurrection of Christ, to reshape the future. The glories of the resurrection life, that's the type of life that Jesus Christ enjoys right now, is brought into human history with Holy Spirit power for the renewal of the cosmos. See, see this <clears throat> new covenant paradigm is now the working reality of history. We do not function, this is important, we're talking about the gunfight and debate right now in Virginia. We do not function as humanists with reincarnation and materialistic determinism. We function in this world as ambassadors of Christ with whole life insurance, not term life insurance. Whole life insurance. We have the deposit of resurrection hope in the here and now. It is the present future. Christ in his resurrection has injected into history a bright hope of victory and conquest. Let me say this last two things, which means we have to enjoy the victory. We're fighting these fights in victory. We must not live as people without resurrection hope. We have hope. Why? Because Christ was born, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was raised, and Christ is enthroned. So the process of the harvest has already begun. It's our job to reap it. Let's pray. God you are good to us you have been gracious to us and we know that to be the case because you have given us your son and we we are excited about the prospect of laboring for your kingdom for laboring with a true victorious mindset and not just a cheesy one that we put on a coffee mug but a true victory where idols are being destroyed and though we seem to be surrounded by the humanists, we know that they are exactly where you want them. So may we be bold enough to, to like David, who didn't say, He's so, Goliath's so big, how, how could we possibly win? David said, Goliath's so big, how could I possibly miss? What a glorious, victorious position and perspective. So grant that to us, God, by faith as we seek to serve you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.